great to be here this morning. So just to introduce myself a little bit, um, just to add to what Ruben said, I'm 49 years young and approaching the big 5-0. My wife's just gone through that, that phase, so it'll be interesting to see how I adapt to that when the time comes. As I said earlier, I teach at Laidlaw, and uh, it's pretty remarkable I do. If anyone had met me when I was 13 and said, one day you'll be a theological lecturer, they'd have laughed their heads off. But I'll tell you more, more about that in a moment. Uh, this is a book I've just written. I've written a couple, but uh, the first one you need a, a doctorate to read, so don't bother. If you've seen Friends, there's that scene where uh, Ross goes and checks out where his doctorate is, and it's up the back of the library where all the students make out. And, of course, he goes up there one day, and Chandler's there with Monica, and he's very, very upset. And so he goes up there and starts to defend his thesis. That's where my first book is, in the back of the library somewhere. <laughs> Let's read from Galatians 4. I hope you're a church that brings the Word with you. And uh, if you don't, I want to challenge you to. should always uh, bring the Word to church. So let's read from Galatians 4. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I may have laboured over you in vain. Brothers and sisters, I plead with you, become as I am, for I have also become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Of course, this all occurs on Paul's first missionary journey. I'm sure you've been through this, these cities here where Paul experienced great suffering. He went through, he was nearly stoned to death in Derby. He was driven out of Antioch. And of course, it was a tremendous trip. If you, there's a really good book called In the Footsteps of St. Paul by Peter Walker, which has some tremendous photos and stories about what was involved and got very sick. And uh, my friend Peter thinks that John Mark turned back because he saw the mountains and wanted to go back to Jerusalem because they were too hard to climb. But you can imagine the suffering. One of the things I saw on my trip um, to Europe was the distances these people traveled and the, the trial. We went to a place called Assos, and it says that when Paul was in Troas, he decided to head out on his own to Assos. And there's a sign that I, uh, a sign that I have. It's 60 miles and it's over hill and down dale. And Paul just said, well, guys, I'm just going to take off and walk there. I'll see you when I get there. And this is the kind of sacrifice and commitment we have in the New Testament. So I just want to share a little of my story because there's some parallels that can be drawn into the text today. The first phase of my life I call my ignorant phase, although many would contend that I still am quite ignorant. Like the Galatians before Paul came, I lived with a, a, a real... Unlike them, I lived without any knowledge of God. They believed they knew God because they worshipped many gods. When we travelled, we saw temples of Apollos and Athena everywhere. They were the main ones. Apollo, sorry, and Athena everywhere. And uh, we, we, we saw also temples of Aphrodite, the god of, goddess of love. 
and Artemis, the Asian equivalent of that. And so these people were very religious, but I wasn't, and I grew up in a home where I didn't know much about God at all. And so and I, I have to say that those first years of my life, I, I really don't remember thinking about God in the slightest. Then at the age of 13, I had what I call my awakening, where a friend of mine invited me, I lived in the Cook Islands, I lived eight years of my life in the islands, invited me along to an after-school Christian group, and I committed my life to Jesus. I heard the gospel, and I was, if you, it's all right to say I was a virgin in terms of the gospel, I heard the gospel and I just believed it. I was like Lydia, my heart was just opened. Um, it was clearly correct to me and true. But when I went home, it didn't go down too well because the guy who led me to Christ worked with my parents and my parents weren't particularly interested in Christianity. And so I, I went through a really tough time and in the end I said to God, God, I, I'll follow you when I leave home, but I can't follow you now, this is too hard. And looking back, God was good. He, he actually honoured that prayer and took a step back in my life. And for, for a few years of my life, I interpreted that God actually left me. But now, as I've got older and I've reflected and I've prayed and I've had some times of God, I've realised He never left me. He said, OK, I'll, I'll come when, you, when we're ready. So I went through those years of, of awakening. I went through the awakening, then I went into my darkness years. And in those years, I really lived a life that was typical of a New Zealand Kiwi boy. I came back to New Zealand, I wanted to be a sports star. That's all I wanted to do. I wanted to make my name by being funny, I wanted to make my name by being a sports star, and I wanted to make my name by being the best drinker in the rugby and the cricket club. I was your typical guy. It was girls, rugby, and booze. That was my life. And really, it's an embarrassment. If, I, if you were to find out some things about me in that phase, I'd be hopelessly embarrassed, and I repent of all of them, even the good times, probably. At 24, I had a reawakening. I, I didn't hear the gospel. I just simply went through a time of torment about the time I left home, coincidentally. And of course, what was going on, and it took me two years to realise, and a midnight oil song called The Power and the Passion, which some of you will remember for some reason, it's funny how God gets to you, is that I realised one night in my home when I was rather inebriated listening to the song that it was God. So I thought, oh my gosh, I, I need to get my life sorted. So that would set me off on a journey a journey of reawakening. And since then I've been a disciple and I've done my best to. I'm flawed and average and uh, people who stand at the front of churches are no better than anyone else. I just happen to have answered God's call, I suppose. And now I get to teach at Laidlaw College, which, as I said earlier, to those at secondary school would have laughed their head, heads off as I scrambled and stumbled through, through school and then went to university and dropped out of my first year. I still have an incomplete BA to prove it. So... As we come to the text, what I'm going to do is just go through it briefly and draw some things off it. You'll notice in verse 8 and 9, Paul contrasts formally with but now. You see the two words, formally, but now. So Paul is contrasting their previous existences with their present existence. And we can do the same. We can think of our lives before we met Jesus or before we became God aware. And now, of course, some of you, like my kids, grew up in Christian homes and they can't remember that, but bear with me. When you did not know God, that was the period of their lives when they didn't know God. Now, this is very ironical, as I mentioned earlier. These people were very religious. In Acts 17, Paul addresses the Athenians and says, Men of Athens, I see you are religious in many ways. Well, indeed, that's the same through the whole Greco-Roman world. When you travel through, say, Ephesus, and you walk down this great street there towards the library of Celsus, there's just temples everywhere. On every main mountain, the Acropolis that sits in the centre of every Greek or Turkish town, um, as they were back then, as the Greeks were invaded them, you would find a temple. 
And they were huge edifices and structures. If you ever get a chance to go to Hierapolis, uh, fantastic, or, or Bergama, Pergamum in, 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 the, in the Bible, amazing places, temples on every corner. And of course, the em- emperor himself had many temples to him. But Paul says, you did not know God. You were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. And something here, Paul is getting into the idea of those gods, so-called gods, as, as demons in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 20. And he says, but now that you have come to know God, so although they thought they were religious, they didn't know God, now they know God. So they walk in relationship with him. Now the next clause is one of my favorite clauses in the Bible. Or rather to be known by God. And this is the mutuality of Christianity. We think we know God and that's good. But more importantly, God knows us. He knows every part of us. Now that can strike fear in our hearts, can't it? Because he knows all that bad stuff. But that's not our God. Our God is a gracious, compassionate and loving God. And so this could comfort us. We are known by God. He knows your desires. He knows your passions. He knows your struggles. He knows your suffering. And he loves you. And he walks with you. This is Christianity. The Trinity, this idea of God as a community. And we're swept up into this community of the Godhead by the privilege of Jesus having died and risen for us and giving us his life. And we walk in relationship with him. So he says, how can you turn? How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Now this is quite an interesting thing to say. There's a little Greek word here, stoikeia, which you'll find in verse 3 and may have been mentioned in your last week's sermon. But stoikeia is this idea, and it's used by Paul in a number of places, and it's used in 2 Peter, of those elementary things that make the world up, earth, wind, and fire, and dirt, and this stuff. It's used in Colossians of uh, philosophies that are deceiving the Colossians and leading them into error. And here it's used of the Judaizers. We know that from verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years, and I'm sure you've talked about the Judaizers, that are calling these new converts to come under Judaism, to be circumcised, to adhere to the festivals of, Is- of Israel, the Sabbath, the festivals, the months, the new, the new Year festival, and these sort of things. And Paul, it's interesting that Paul says, turn back again. Now, wait a second. These were pagans who didn't believe this stuff before. They believed in Apollo, and they believed in Athena, and Zeus, and these things. So what's going on here? Paul is looking back on those things, these Jewish things that he himself adhered to so strongly, and said, These are in the same category now as them because Messiah has come. Messiah has fulfilled everything as we said earlier and as we have on that cross there that Jesus died and completed and ended and fulfilled the law. And so now there's no going back. There's no turning back. You can't turn back to those things. To do so will tear you apart. Your church will be torn apart. But more than that, it will separate you from God because you come back under law and Jesus came to set us free from law. He came to set us free from guilt and fear. So there's this vertical salvation dynamic and this church dynamic. And this church, as we know, and I'm sure you've heard, is being torn apart by these things. To go back under that is to become a slave. Paul has got a radical new view of his former way of living. And we can place ourselves in the story and look upon our lives as adhering to weak and worthless principles. I've got to say that the hedonism that I pursued, the Alcohol, which is in the news at the moment, big time, and and these sort of things was just worthless rubbish. And yes, behind it were lurking demons that were seeking to destroy me and pull me down. How could I ever turn back? How could you ever turn back to the things that you once held firm to? Perhaps it was materialism. 
Perhaps it's a consumerist mentality. Who knows what it is? So Paul in verse 11 says, I'm afraid that I've laboured over you in vain. This is, the, this is a strong statement. He's concerned that they will fall away and there's a, a great scandal in Christianity as to whether you can fall away or you can't. In my learned opinion studying Paul, he seems to think you can. And he's deeply perturbed that his, his lovely Galatian church will be lost to Christ if they don't turn back. Brothers and sisters is a term of endearment. In Greek it's brothers and I've added, I use the ESV because it's more literal, but it obviously means and sisters. He's saying to them, He's pleading with them. Entreat is a powerful Greek word that, that pleads. It's much stronger than his normal encouragement word that he would use. Become as I am. In other words, free from living under those principles. For I also have become as you are. When he was amongst them, he lived as a Gentile. Paul, unlike Peter and James in chapter 2 of Galatians, who wouldn't eat with the Gentiles and were drawing back from table fellowship, he participated with them. Because in his missionary approach, he became as the people he, he, he witnessed to. Because he knew that these things are shadows. They're just indifferent issues, a, a diaphora, we call it. They are non-essential issues. Let none of those non-essential issues divide you. He says, remember how you accepted me. You did me, you did me no wrong. You did not harm me. What Paul's doing there is calling them to go back and remember their conversions. Now, I don't know about you, but... Can you remember the points at which, say, you were at a camp and you said yes to Jesus? Or the, the points at which God did those miracles in your life when you were a young Christian that, you know, sometimes don't seem to happen as much now. I mean, when I was first a Christian, you know, I just had to ask for a car park and I had one. It was phenomenal. Now it's like God says, grow up, boy. <laughs> you know, I'm teaching you patience. You're going to park at the other end of that car park. But, you know, what tends to happen as you get older, you reinterpret these events and you start to think, oh, they were good things, but they weren't really that important, we lose our edge. Don't let that happen to you. Paul is recalling, saying to them, remember, remember those things that happened in your life. Remember the visions and dreams, like the vision God gave me once to give up rugby. Gosh, I couldn't believe it when he said that to me. It was a terrifying thing. He said, I want you to give up sport, and now I know why, because I'm doing this. Now, he, he's never said that to any of my friends. My daughters run, run like mad. They're mad for running, and God's never said it to them, but it was because it was my first love. And God wanted me to place him as my first love. Now I look back on that and sometimes I've second-guessed it and says, oh, you didn't really say that, Lord. But no, he did say that to me. And I can recall the psalm, Psalm 40, where he said, I waited patiently for the Lord. I turned to you and he turned to me and heard my cry. He pulled me out of the slimy pit. I'd just been watching a rugby game in the mud. Out of the mud and mire and so on and so forth. So I remember that day, and that keeps us fresh. This is very much like Revelation 2.4, remember your first love. And he reminds them that even though he was a very sick, ill man, they received him well. Now in the ancient world, to be sick was to be cursed. And yet they received him and heard the gospel from him. It also shows that Paul would take every opportunity to share the gospel, even illness. They didn't scorn or spit me out in Greek. And it, there was this idea of the evil eye in the ancient world where you'd give someone the evil eye and curse them with it. And one of the ways you could get rid of the evil eye was to spit three times on the ground. And so this could be lurking behind it. But these Galatians received him. They received him as an angel of God. And that's an ironical play on the idea that we see in Galatians chapter 1 and Galatians 3 of the, the Sinai covenant being given to Moses, the Ten Commandments, by an angel. So they received him as an angel, and he's saying, don't go back. Don't go back. 
They received him as Christ Jesus. And of course, that's the crunch for Paul. Paul doesn't really care about himself particularly. He just doesn't want them to lose their grip on Christ. Verse 15, what then has become of this blessing you've felt? He's saying, what's happened? Have you forgotten your first love? Have you forgotten the great things God's done in your life? Have you forgotten, have you, have you, have you stopped interpreting your life through the lens of God's goodness? Think of the good things in your life. We often look at the glass and it's half empty when in fact it's almost full. For I testify that if possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. This is the language of love. And then in verse 17, Paul introduces they. There's a lot of I's and a lot of you's and a lot of me's. They. These are these teachers. Acts 15, 1 and 2 tells us about these people. They went to Antioch and preached that unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be part of God's people. You cannot be a part of the people. So he's tearing the church apart and threatening their very relationship with God. They make much of you. So these people are, are clearly trying to win them over with their attraction. They want to shut you out. Now that's ironical. See, they believe that these new Gentile converts are actually shut out because they're not circumcised and haven't come under Judaism. Because their vision of, 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 of theology is that when God sends his Messiah, everyone in the world will become a Jew. But what you've got here is this irony. They're actually shutting out the Gentile believers who have come to the Lord through faith. Faith is the only way, it is the only boundary marker to define a Christian. And what is faith? This becomes a big question, isn't it? I've got this way of defining it. At creation, God said to the world, yes, didn't he? Yes. When we went to the fall and Adam and Eve ate from the tree, we said no. And we continue to say no, don't we? And the world has been corrupted. For me, I describe it as a virus has come into downloaded into the mainframe of planet Earth and corrupted every element of it. And we continue to rebel and resist against God. In redemption, which we, t- we took communion a moment ago, God says yes. 2 Corinthians 1, yes, says God, verses 19 to 20 or 18 to 20 there. Jesus is God's yes to us. And now we live in a period where we say yes or no to God, don't we? We either say yes to this offer of salvation in Jesus or we say no. And then eternity is God's yes to what we said. God, if we say no to God, he says yes. And we spend eternity separated from him. That's the tragedy and something God d- desires least of all. But if we say yes to his yes, we live forever with him. So the gospel is yes, no, yes, yes, no, yes. <laughs> Faith is saying yes to God. That's all it is. It's accepting this wonderful gift of salvation that has been offered to us. These Galatians are wanting to go back under a religious system that is more than yes, it's yes plus. They're wanting to go under a system. Now, we do this to each other as Christians. We can often look down on a brother and sister because they don't pray enough, they don't give enough, they don't read their Bibles enough, they don't witness enough, they don't behave well enough. Let nothing divide us in that way. We're all struggling wounded healers trying to make our way in, the, in this world. We're all broken. We're all at different places. We must pull together and love one another and nurture each other where we are in our faith. Not to do what the Galatians are doing and tearing each other apart. So these guys are shutting them out. 
And then Paul finishes, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. In other words, when he was amongst them. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, now he goes to the present, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Notice the language there, my little children. And notice the language of mothering here. Everyone says Paul is this patriarchal guy, right? Slipped into his letters are these comments about him as a mother. 1 Thessalonians 2, there's another one. 1 Corinthians 3, there's another one where he speaks about solid food and milk. The anguish of childbirth, the anguish of childbirth. This is the language of Romans 8. Whole of creation groaning as in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He's back to square one with them. You're slipping away. Come back. Don't let yourself be deceived and taken away into false ideas. We're surrounded by them in the church today. Prosperity teaching. I'm a Presbyterian. Protestant liberalism is our problem. And actually, I've just been to a conference uh, at the Assembly, Reuben, where we reaffirmed the Westminster Confession alongside a new one. So there was a lot of us that were really happy about that, even though there's bits of that that are marginal, to be perfectly honest. But never mind. You can't have the perfect confession, can you? My little children, he loves them, and he's calling them back. And I'm sure that the word of God to us today, where Jesus here is to say, my little children, Walk with me until Christ is formed in you, until I am formed in you. And Christ is formed in you is good. The word form there should make you think of places like Philippians 2, where Jesus is in the form of God, who became the form of a slave after emptying himself. Or do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed. These are all form words related to this idea here. Or in Philippians 3, where it says that our bodies, our lowly bodies will be transformed to be like Christ's body. Paul's into form in a big way. And here his, his desire is that Christ would be formed in us so that he overwhelms us and we become more and more like Jesus. In the Jesus that you are, because you are placed on planet Earth as a cosmic transformer to share Christ in your workplace and in the way you live. And he's perplexed about them. What will we do? Well, let's draw this all together and suggest you some things to take home with you today. The first thing, don't allow yourself to slip back to the nothingness that you once followed. Perhaps you've fallen prey to drinking a little bit much or you know, dabbling in areas that are not productive and not helpful. When I was a younger, younger man, I liked porn. You know, and I know today it's a big problem. Don't, don't go back to that. That's just nothing. That's just stoikeia, stoikeia. Elementary, weak and beggarly principles of this world that are worthless. And in fact, they're lethal and dangerous. Don't go back. Don't be like Demas, it says in 2 Timothy 4 verse 10, who loved the world and deserted Paul. Don't be like the follower of Jesus in Luke 9, who said, I'll follow you. Let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus said, whoever puts his hand to the plough and looks back is not fit for service. But endure. Jesus says, whoever endures to the end will be saved. Let's resolve to hang in there. Not because of a law that's imposed on us telling us how to live, but because of the power of the Spirit within us. Live by faith. Live by yes. As you get up in the morning tomorrow, say yes. As you get in the car and you hit the motorway and it's all over the place, you know, you're half an hour late before you even hit the motorway, right? Say yes. Yes to patience. When you get to work and you face those dilemmas, say yes. 
Just keep saying yes. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Live out of grace, not because God's going to smite you if you get it wrong or separate you. Out of grace, let the spirit inside you well up and live that out. And don't be seduced by theologies that pull us back out of this. Don't be seduced by that. The Bible is not a rule law book for the Christian. The Bible is a set of precepts and injunctions under the banner of love that are placed within us to flow out of us. Let's don't go under guilt and fear, but live by, as Mark Strom would say, grace and freedom. And the other thing I notice in this passage is how Paul shared the gospel despite his illness. He probably had an eye problem, although that's debated. Some people think malaria, and we don't really know what it was. But, you know, when we get the opportunity, they come at the weird and wackiest times. Just take them. Otherwise, live as a great witness. Just let the yes flow out of you, and you will be that witness. And love as Paul loved. Do you notice how he loved them? As a mother loves a child? This is a a big thing for a man to say, isn't it? As in the pains of childbirth. He loves. I've got this idea that Paul's wife died. Did you know that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you can go and check this out. The Greek word that's described of him as single, you look it up, it's agamos, which actually means a widower. And it's very likely that his wife has died when he was a younger man, and she may well have died in childbirth. That's a very strong possibility, which was probably the most common way for a woman to die young in the ancient world. And perhaps there's something more behind this than we know. And finally, just to finish, say yes. Will you do that? Creation is God's yes. The fall is our no. Jesus is God's yes. And we have the option every day and every moment. There's the big first yes that brings us into relationship with God. And if you haven't said that big yes, I really encourage you to. God can take a university dropout drunk and turn him into a lecturer with a doctorate in theology. How bizarre is that? And he will say yes to you. He will say yes to you. Will you say yes? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, the cosmic yes that is Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that written across the sky is the word yes. Thank you, Lord, that it doesn't matter what we've done or what we've been doing this last week or what sins grip us. Jesus is our yes. Jesus is your yes. Lord, we reaffirm our yes to you. You may choose to do that today. And if you do, I recommend you just say yes to Jesus. And more importantly, as you go from this place today, to walk in that yes, to live by faith and not by sight. The Lord does not promise us a suffering-free life. He promises us struggles in this world. But his promise to us is yes, and he will be faithful to every promise. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that we will have the strength to say yes as we walk from this place. Because, Lord, you will enable it. And cause us all just to take stock and step away from those knows that have crept in and live out of the yes, Lord. Thank you so much for your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.